theology leads to doxology. Theology leads to doxology. That's a phrase that you've probably heard once or twice if you've been coming to this church for any period of time. It's sort of a popular phrase in certain circles of Christianity. But what exactly does it mean? Well, let's break it down for a moment. The word theology just means the study of God. Theos is God and ology is to study the study of God. So theology, the study of God, is presented then not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. We learn of God so that something else can happen. And what is that other thing? Well, the answer is worship. We want to learn of God so that we can honor Him. And that's what the word worship means. To worship something is to ascribe to it the worthiness of that thing. When you recognize and praise the worthiness of something, you are technically worshiping it. And so the knowledge of God leads to the worship and praise of God. The more that we know about God, the more we have, more worth we have to ascribe to Him. And that's what a doxology is. The word doxology simply means a praise to God. A doxology can be a prayer or a song or just a statement. As a matter of fact, we conclude, well, not at the very end, but one of the last things we do in every one of our services is sing a song known as the doxology. And we just repeat, praise God, four times. To praise God is a doxology. So when we say theology leads to doxology, we're saying we study God so that we can praise Him and know Him. And this is exactly the road that Paul has taken in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. After teaching us all of these wonderful things about God in Ephesians chapter 1 and in Ephesians chapter 2, he concludes his section with a doxology. A doxology which the great Charles Hodge stated has in it more of heaven than earth. Paul actually has many doxologies throughout the New Testament. In almost all of his letters, he has some sort of doxological praise to God, if you will. But the one in Ephesians chapter 3 is the one that the Lord has for us this morning. It's the one he wants us to put into our minds and repeat from our own lips. So would you please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Our text this morning is verses 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. When you've found it, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then get everyone popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Thus says the Lord, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? This doxology marks the end of a section. And you kind of sense that when you hear a doxology, right? Isn't that just kind of naturally how you read it? When, when you hear this doxology, especially if it ends in an amen, you sort of see that as being the concluding of something. And that's why we follow this same train of thought in the, our own liturgy of, of our church. Paul prayed in our sermon text last week, and then he did a doxology to end this section. And that's essentially how we end all of our 
church services, right? We end with family time. We end with our prayer. Right before that, we had a doxology, and then we receive a benediction. So these are sort of classic ways to, to end a train of thought. And so Paul is trying to tell us with this doxology, I'm done talking about this stuff now. Paul is ended with something. Now, it's bizarre to talk about Paul concluding something in chapter 3, when if you have your Bibles open, you can see that there's a lot more of Ephesians left over. Right? Why are we concluding something in the very middle of the book? Well, that's because if you recall, and it's okay if you don't, it was a long time ago. But when we first began Ephesians, we did the introductory uh, sermon, we talked about how Ephesians basically has two messages in it. A message of gospel and a message of law. We talked about how Paul's primary purpose in writing the book of Ephesians was to call the Ephesians to live more holy lives. It was to call them to what we call sanctification, to grow in holiness. But Paul knows something. Paul knows that people do not become genuinely more godly when you just beat them over the head with the law. Right? You don't just go into a room and slap someone around, be better, be better, do better. That's, that's a phrase I hear in the culture all the time. Do better, do better, be better. Oh, okay, I'm just, just, just muster that energy myself because you said so, right? And so Paul knows, I can't, I'm not just going to lead with do better. So the whole first two chapters, the whole first three chapters are Paul laying the theological foundation of the gospel. Of what God has done for us and who he is. And Paul then provides that the gospel is the primary motivation for the Christian to be holy. He knows that if I really want these Ephesians to grow in holiness, I need to give them a foundation to be holy. And so he simply teaches them of all that God is and all that God has done for them. And holiness comes easy after that. And that's how Paul structures the letter. And so the section Paul is ending in this section here is essentially what we call the gospel. That's not to say the gospel is not going to come up again throughout the letter. But Paul is primarily ending his teaching on who God is and what God has done on behalf of the Ephesians. And so what that means for us is that beginning next week, you can expect the sermons to be very different. And the letter is going to be very different because Paul is embarking on new territory beginning next week. But before we get there, I don't want us to overlook this doxology too quickly. It's easy to do that because the doxology is basically kind of like, you know, in, uh, some people when they send emails, they have a sign-off phrase. And you don't really read a lot into the sign-off phrase. That's basically what it is. It's Paul saying, okay, I'm checking out now. It's easy to go through it, but there is so much for us in this doxology. God teaches us so much in this praise that Paul gives to him. And if I were to summarize the primary teaching that the doxology has for us, I would summarize it this way. This is sort of the main idea to the whole sermon. That our church exists to bring glory to God. Redeemer Christian Fellowship exists to bring glory to God. I get that primarily from verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Speaking, obviously, of God, Paul says in verse 21, To him be glory in the church. And let's stop there. That's really what Paul's getting at with his doxology. God, Paul knows how worthy of praise God is, and so he wants the church, he's calling the church to ascribe that worth to God. Glorify the God of all glory. That's why we are here. And he even goes on to say, if we keep reading, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, God is eternally glorious. He is an infinite being. He is an eternal being. And all of his attributes are infinite and eternal, which makes his glory infinite eternal. So what kind of praise, what kind of worship, what kind of glory is the infinite eternal God worthy of? Everlasting worship. Everlasting praise. Infinite and eternal glory. So that is why we are not called to just give him praise once, but the church exists to forever, throughout all generations, always give glory to God. Why does Redeemer exist at all? We exist to give glory to God. But there is this important qualification that Paul says, which we've kind of passed over quickly here. Yes, God deserves glory, but specifically from whom? Or maybe a better question is, where is God glorified? And that's why the text qualifies in verse 21. To him be glory in the church. You see, the glorifying of God takes place within his church. That's the sphere where the glory of God belongs. The Christian church, in other words, is where God is to be worshipped. This is the only time, by the way, in all of Paul's many doxologies that the church is brought into it. But it makes sense for us in Ephesians because if you've been with us, you remember the church has been a huge theme throughout the book of Ephesians so far. So far, the primary teaching of Ephesians has been Paul explaining how the Jewish people as an ethnic race are no longer the exclusive people of God. But that God has brought believers from the Jews and believers from the Gentiles together by faith in Christ and created a new man, a new temple, a new kingdom, a new race, which is called the church. Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 is all about how the gospel has created the Christian church. So the church is very important to the book of Ephesians. And so it makes sense that Paul would to sort of drag it into the doxology here. That you are part of the church now, you Ephesian believers. You are part of the kingdom of God. You are part of God's covenant people. And what does the kingdom of God do? What does the covenant people of God do? Why do they exist? They bring glory to God. That's your job now. You're in his group. You're in his people. You're in the church. And it's in the church that we bring glory to God. And so that helps us, that qualification, bring glory to God in the church. That's what helps us to really formulate our main idea. Our main idea is not simply to glorify God, but that our church exists to glorify God. Because if Paul's point, here's the logic here, if Paul's point is that the, the church universal, the whole church that, that Jesus has established and created, if their job is to be the place of worship of God, then we can deduce by extension to our local church, which we've described as a, a, a manifestation of the universal, Right? The universal church is all believers everywhere in every generation. And local churches are a physical, visible manifestation of that bigger picture. So if the, the goal of the whole Christian church is to praise God, and we are a manifestation of the Christian church, what's, what's our goal? <laughs> Same thing. To praise God. If the purpose of the church is to praise God, then we can confidently deduce from this passage that Redeemer Christian Fellowship exists to bring glory to God. But I hope you see some other things as we talk briefly about the church's role and the main idea here. I hope you see in this the importance of going to church and being united to the local church. 
You see, God did not set up a system where a lot of individuals all over the world would worship him in their isolated conditions. That's not how God views the church, where he just saves people and then where they're at, they just begin to worship God. That does happen. But God's plan of salvation is to bring these people together into the church, which is where we worship him. In other words, if I can put it bluntly, your worship of God is incomplete if it only exists within an isolated religious experience. God's desire is that his people worship him corporately as his church, his bride, his kingdom, his covenant people. And there's another, although it's implicit way, in which the value of the church is attested to in this short doxology. We've already mentioned it, but that Paul tells us that God should be glorified in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. If the church then is to glorify God in every generation forever and ever, what does that tell you about the nature and the character of the church? It's everlasting. It's never going away. The church is going to exist forever. There will never be a time in any of the future of human history where the Christian church does not exist and live on the face of the earth. I believe, contrary to most people, that one day this church is going to dominate and overtake the earth and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because the Psalms prophesy that the worship of God would one day be as filled through the earth as the waters cover the sea. The church will always exist on earth and have victory on earth and it will exist in heaven and will continue to exist forever because that is where our eternal God deserves his eternal worship. In other words, Paul is reminding us here that the church is indefectible. She won't perish. She won't be conquered. She will end, never end. Which, by the way, Christ Jesus himself promised to Peter when he says in Matthew 16 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You see, when I tell people to go to church, when I tell people to be involved and united to the church, I'm not just merely passing on the, the traditions of my ancestors which indoctrinated me into believing that the church is important. I am inviting you to be connected to the institution that Christ established that is going to be victorious and that will exist forever and ever where God is worshipped. It is a privilege that you are invited to church. This is an indefectible, unconquerable, eternal institution founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to help you share my glory. This is amazing. And there's more implications to this, believe it or not. All of this should not just teach us that the church is important, that worshiping God within the church is important. It should also teach us how we worship on Sunday is important. How we worship God matters. What do I mean by that? Well, if the purpose of the church is to glorify God, then when we gather on Sundays, I think it makes sense to say God should probably be our focus. If you want a fancy theological term for this, this is called theocentric worship. God-centered worship. If the reason we gather is to glorify God, then that sort of helps us guide our steps in determining what do we do? How do we do that? 
We want to preach sermons that make much of God and not much of us. We want to sing songs that glorify God and do not glorify us. And I could go on and on and on. You see the train of thought there. And this is important because I hate to be critical, especially we have a lot of visitors today, so I feel bad being critical. But I just have to say, far too much worship and theology today is heavily focused on the people there. Far too much of evangelical worship has men in view. It has mankind in view. The worshiper is the focus. In fact, there was an entire movement, which is still alive today. It doesn't really go by this name anymore, but it's still very much alive. There was an entire movement known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And the seeker-sensitive movement decided to just sort of throw out everything the church had been doing for so long and rethink how we're supposed to be doing church, and specifically with seekers involved in mind. In other words, people aren't coming to church. It's hard to get people to come. People do come and they're bored. They're not having fun and then they're not coming back. How do we make church more engaging? How do we, when, when someone visits our church, how do we guarantee they come back the next week? And so we threw out the playbook and we reinvented church to make it more appealing and more comfortable to the visitors, to the seekers, to the unchurched, so that they would enjoy being here and that they would want to stay. And so under the guise of evangelism, under the guise of having a heart for the lost, churches everywhere adopted a form of worship that is tailored to what pleases men. But the job of the church is not to entertain men. The job of the church is to glorify God. Let me be quite frank with you. I could not care any less what unregenerate unbelievers think of our worship here. I don't care. I don't care what non-Christians think about our worship here. We don't worship for them. They're not our focus. I do care about someone's opinion. There is someone in this room right now that we should all be very, very concerned with whether this person is pleased with our worship right now. And it's God himself. That's who we long to please. Why? Because the church does not exist to bring glory to the seekers. The church exists to bring glory to God. What does a successful worship service look like? Is it when you pack the seats? Is it when at least 90% of the people who are here today show up again next Sunday? How do you measure the success of a, of a worship service? And it's hard to measure because it's spiritual. But I would submit to you that a worship service is successful when God is glorified. Our church exists to bring glory to God. That is what we learn from this doxology. But by the grace of God, there are applications that we can also take from this doxology. Because to some degree, this sort of begs the question important questions of that I've already alluded to, like how specifically can we do this? What about God is there to glorify? How do I glorify God as part of his church? And there are many answers to that question, but we're obviously going to focus on the ones that Paul gives us in this doxology. And so I have three ways that we can glorify God, both as individuals and together as the church, that we learn from this doxology. If our goal is to glorify God, here are three ways that we can do that. Number one, we bring glory to God when we hope in his attributes. We bring glory to God when we hope in his attributes. That's how Paul begins the doxology. 
Before he starts praising and glorifying God, he gives us one of many things that makes God so worthy of our praise. He, he says, in case I haven't convinced you with all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, let me just remind you of one reason why God is so worthy of our unending worship. And he tells us that in verse 20. Read with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think or ask. Why is God worthy of my praise? Because he is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or all that you think. Paul here is reminding us of one of God's attributes. Something that describes who God is. And this is an attribute we refer to as omnipotence. Why should you worship God? Because he's omnipotent. What is that word? Omnipotence is all-powerful. The power of God is eternal. It is infinite. He lacks no power. That's what it means to say God is omnipotence. Uh, one of my favorite theologians ever, a man named Stephen Charnock, who has a two-volume work called The uh, Existence and Attributes of God. It's not light reading, but it is nonetheless incredibly devotional and incredibly educational. And so if, if it's in your budget, I, I would in, invite you to read those. I, I like the way Stephen Charnock uh, defines omnipotence. He says this, that it is the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, whatsoever the infinite purity of his will can resolve. God's omnipotence means that he can bring to pass whatever he desires, whatever his infinite wisdom conceives of, and whatever his pure and righteous will knows needs to take place. God can do and accomplish whatever he wants. Or if you want to use the language of Paul, you could say it this way. God can do abundantly more than even you can imagine. God can do abundantly more than even you can ask. That is a very poetic way to describe God's power as being infinite, is it not? Because we have limitations physically, right? There are lots of things that you and I cannot do. We are very limited physically. But our imaginations are pretty unlimited. You have a lot of imaginative power. You can imagine a lot of things. You can imagine impossible things. And guess what Paul poetically says? As far as the limits of your imagination go, God's power goes abundantly beyond them. You can ask for a lot of things. You can ask for some really big things. You can pray some really, really bold prayers. And God's power is abundantly more able to accomplish even that which you ask in your boldest, wildest prayer. God's power is infinite. In other words, the same thing we said about the love of Jesus Christ last week is what Paul is saying about the power of God this week. It is beyond your comprehension. We, we literally cannot fully comprehend and fathom and understand the power of God. It is infinite. But uh, let, me, let me bring it back to something a little bit more applicable here. Because you see, Paul is doing more than just merely mentioning God's omnipotence. He is using it 
He is using God's power as a source of hope. He's not just putting it out on a platter for us to gawk at. He's putting it on a platter for us to consume and feast and be nourished by. Right? I mean, it's, it's a little subtle, but I mean, read with me. Again, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power within us. Shouldn't, isn't, don't you see Paul's trying to encourage you here? He's trying to to settle your anxieties. (laughs) He's trying to probably settle the minds of the Ephesians because he's given them a lot to chew on throughout these two chapters. He he prayed a very bold prayer on their behalf last week that they would become godly and holy and they're probably thinking, this is really, really difficult. And you know what? Without the power of God, it is. It's impossible. But you see, the reason Paul can pray bold prayers It's because he knows he has a bold God. A God who can do far more than what he even asks. This is being given to them as a source of hope. God's power should feed your discouraged soul. It should calm your fears. You're worried about the future? God's in control and he can do whatever he wants. You see how encouraging it is? So I guess what I'm saying is that we do not glorify God by merely acknowledging his power. We glorify God by hoping in it, by delighting in it, by treasuring it. You see, the demons will acknowledge God's power. They probably wouldn't say it to your face because they're liars. But demons in their heart, they know that God is powerful. They acknowledge that, but they don't bring glory to God. They don't worship God. Why? Because that's all the demons do, is they merely acknowledge it, but they don't delight in it. It's not a source of hope and comfort and joy for them. As a matter of fact, it's actually a a, a sign of great terror for them. You remember the story in the Gospels of how terrified that demon was to encounter Jesus? He begged him, please don't destroy me. And Jesus graciously casted them to swine and drowned him in a lake. They were terrified of the power of God. You see, the demons can acknowledge God's power, but they can't hope in it. They can't delight in it. And so what does it remind us of? Just like Paul is doing here, I'm not asking you just to be a nerdy theologian and walk out of this room going, I know what the word omnipotence means and I can teach people about omnipotence. That's not the goal here. Theology leads to doxology. We've been taught that God is all-powerful. Why? So we can delight in him. So that we can enjoy him. So that you can rest easy on your pillow tonight. That's how we worship him. There is a clear connection between the power of God and the encouragement of God. One other place that Paul has made this explicitly clear before we move on. I love this. It's a similar verse in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, quoting from the Old Testament, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you're a discouraged person living with anxiety and fear, you should memorize that verse. And you should preach it to yourself every time you're worried about the future. You can't even begin to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. You see the power of God and its connection to comfort and hope. We worship God by hoping in his attributes. Another way we worship God is by relying on his spirit. We worship God when we rely on his Holy Spirit. We do this in our individual lives. But even as a church, we have to come and worship God in the power of the Spirit. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that one day my community will worship me in spirit and in truth. 
We don't, again, we don't just come here for theology. We don't just come here to speak the truth to each other. We come here to worship not just in truth, but in the power of the Spirit. And where do I get that from in our text? Well, because notice how Paul qualifies the power of God. He tells us about the power of God, but then he qualifies it. And how does he do that? Verse 20 again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power, which is what? At work within us. Paul encourages the church by drawing our attention to the fact that the primary and ordinary way that God uses his power on earth is through us. The members of his church. You see, we read often, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, we read often of these extravagant miracles in Scripture. We see all the ways that God's power is manifested and how he is able to sort of externally from us accomplish his will. Right? We read of things like a fire of tornado falling from the sky and protecting Israel. We read of Jesus turning water into wine. We see the Red Sea parted. We see the enemies of God judged with fire and brimstone. All of these external, obvious manifestations of God's power to accomplish his purpose. We see those things in Scripture, and then we don't see them in our lives. And so it's easy to desire them. Like, where is God's power? Why isn't he doing more? Like, you want the church to advance? You want the church to, 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 to press on in victory? Like, a, a couple more fire tornadoes might be nice. I don't know. It'd be nice if maybe I could turn water into wine. That might maybe help more unbelievers show up on Sunday morning. Like, where is the power of God? But Paul reminds us, it's sitting in the chairs right now. It's, God does not delight to just only work outside of his church. He wants to work in and through his church. God doesn't need to just make the sun stand still every day or perform these miracles. God is perfectly content to take your everyday acts of faithfulness and obedience, your simple, holy life, and he can use that to have more of an impact on our society, more of an impact on the church than parting the Red Seas ever could. Believe that. It is the same power of God in the miracles. It is the same power of God that rose Jesus from the dead, which is in you. You see, God works through his church. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are the mediums of his power, if you will. He can transform our everyday acts of faithfulness. He can use our worship in amazing ways because his power is within us. And how do we know, I'm not going to go into all the scriptures today, but how do we know from the overwhelming testimony of the Bible, the power of God dwells in us? Is it just like this invisible juice that he pours into us? No, all throughout the New Testament, you have a connection between the power of God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the agent that accomplishes God's will on earth. And the Holy Spirit, because he is equally God, he shares the same divine essence that the Father and the Son share. That means he shares the same power as the Father because they have the same essence. So if the Holy Spirit is in you, then the same power that God has, which is in the Spirit, is now in you. So we experience the power of God in us by having the Holy Spirit through our faith in Christ dwell within us. So how does that transform our worship? Well, we see things in Scripture like the Holy Spirit gives all of us spiritual gifts. 
You want to worship God in spirit and in truth? Utilize your spiritual gifts. Serve the church. Bless the church. Give people your gifts. Trust in the guidance of the Spirit. And I promise you, you would be amazed at how much a loving, caring, serving church can change its community far faster than a miracle can. I remind you, we talked about this in Sunday school, the first generation of the Israelites wandering in the desert saw a lot of miracles. You know what the book of Hebrews says happened to them? They died in the wilderness. You know, there were guards at the tomb who saw Jesus' resurrection. You know what happened to them? They went and told the Pharisees and all of them made up a lie to try to save their heads. Didn't change their hearts. We have this inclination to put all of our hope in these external acts of God, but God wants us to put our hope in the internal acts of God. He wants us to put our hope in His church, not in His miracles. We worship God by relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The last way that we worship God is by magnifying His Son. We worship God when we magnify His Son. Where do I get that from? I get that from another qualification. But this time, Paul doesn't qualify the power of God. This time, he qualifies the praise of God. Look at verse 21. Speaking of God, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does Paul mean when he says, and in Christ Jesus here? What Paul means is that we cannot bring glory to God outside of Jesus Christ. Any church that, does, that is not in Christ, meaning they have not placed their faith in the true Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures, that church is not part of the body of Christ, which cannot bring glory to God. Jesus is the only means we have to glorify God as the church. And this is why it is so crucial that our church not only be theocentric, but to use another theological term, that our church be Christocentric, a Christ-centered church. We must be Christ-centered. We need to be all about Jesus Christ in this church. Jesus is everything. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only access any person has to God. He is the only one through whom God can be truly and properly glorified. What I lament perhaps more than anything is how prevalent a Christless Christianity has become in our country. I have spoken with so many Christians who have wonderful things to say about some generic deity that they call God. But there is so little focus on the person and work of Jesus. It is lamentable, and it is teachers like me who are to blame, that we have done such a poor job in catechizing and teaching people that Christ is the focus of the Christian religion. A Christless religion is no religion at all. I cannot tell you, it is a lamentable thing, how many Christians I have asked, what is the gospel? And Jesus never comes out of their mouth. There are people in churches all over the country today that are hearing sermons that will speak really highly of God. They're going to be told that God loves them. They're going to be told that God wants them to live a fulfilling life. They're being told that God will change them and make them better. They're being told that through God they can overcome all of their trials. And these things are true. These things are good. 
But while Jesus' name might be just like occasionally sprinkled in every now and then, these churchgoers will largely walk away with little to no understanding of the crucial and central role Jesus plays in mediating their salvation and their worship of God. They will walk out of church and they like Jesus, they like God, but they really don't know that much about either of them. Their religion and their worship is really not truly Christ-centered. And so let me just very bluntly tell you the truth. Saying positive things about God is not what makes someone a Christian. Thinking highly of God has never saved anybody. All religions think highly of God. When's the last time you've met a religious person who says, yeah, I worship God, but he's kind of lousy. He's, he's, I'm, not, I'm not his biggest fan, but I, just, I don't know, I worship him anyway. Everybody who's religious thinks highly of God. Thinking highly of God is not what saves you. The gospel is not that God is great. The gospel is not that God loves you and you love God. The gospel is not that God has changed you. That's not the gospel. Because the gospel is presented to us in Scripture as the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible points us to God only through the work of Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that God can be glorified. Christ is the one God sent to reveal himself. You don't know God outside of Christ. You don't know the gospel outside of Christ. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sins, that's your gospel. And that's the heart of this church. We don't merely think highly of God. We worship God through the mediating work of Jesus Christ, his son, who was born of a virgin, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. That's who the Bible points us to, and it is only in him. Only by making much of Christ can we ever make much of God. And so in conclusion, this means that when we gather for church, we must gather to make much of Christ. We must gather to lift him high. We must gather to do what the church was made to do, which is to glorify God by the power of the Spirit through the Son. 